Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Imagine an enormous, half-a-century-old power source lurking deep in a mountain in a place called the Batcave. It's funny, that's what we call it sometimes. It's like James Bond. Or Get Smart, and we would get smart from the 60s. <laughs> from the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll take a rare look at a gigantic battery that's helping to balance our region's energy grid. And we'll continue our series of conversations about renewable energy policy. We'll also take you to another place off the beaten path, a tiny island where opioid addicts go to seek treatment. The confinement is more in your mind. In other words, you're not in a rehab center. You're on an island and you're not locked away while everybody else is conducting their life. You're conducting your life here. We'll also visit the town that gives Stephen King fans the creeps. Even now, to this day, I think of it. I, to this day, I do that. <laughs> it's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region, with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. This is Next. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, we'll take you to an island where people struggling with addiction go to get treatment. But we're going to begin this week's show underground, inside Northfield Mountain in northern Massachusetts. We've talked a lot on our program about energy and how to store it, including in small Tesla batteries you can put in your garage. But in this mountain, WBUR's Bruce Gellerman found the biggest battery in New England. Ninety miles northwest of Boston is Northfield Mountain Recreation and Environmental Center. Manager Bill Gabriel says the Four Season facility serves over 100,000 visitors a year. We have camping, canoeing, cross-country skiing in the wintertime. People bring their horses here. We have trails. Uh, people can ride mountain bikes, go hiking. There are black bear, deer, peregrine falcons, and soaring overhead atop Northfield Mountain, a bald eagle carrying breakfast in its beak. It's a naturalist wonderland, but if you look around, you'll see an unnatural sight, a five billion gallon battery. So what you're looking at right here is the upper reservoir, and I consider this to be the battery for the station. Gus Backus is director of Massachusetts Hydro Operations for First Light Power Resources. The company owns and operates the Northfield Mountain Pump Storage Hydroelectric Station. The generators are powered by this man-made mountaintop lake. So this is our supply our stored energy similar to a battery so when we need that battery to turn on we would take this water and we would run it into the facility to produce power the hydroelectric generating facility is located hundreds of feet below the reservoir hidden deep inside the hollowed out northfield mountain but you would never know it except for an occasional hint there are people that have been coming here for 30 years and somebody will ask well what are those wires and somebody will explain that, well, there's a power plant on the ground. We'll stop in my office, I'll pick up some hard hats for you, and we'll go from there. So how many people actually get to go where we're going? No one. Because of the security concerns, you know, with an underground power project of this size, we would do escorted tours on an as-needed basis for people that would, that would have a need to see what we do, but typically we don't allow public tours. 
Hard hats in hand, we head off. Past a security fence, under the watchful eyes of surveillance cameras, we come to a hole in the mountain, chiseled out of gray granite. It's wider than the Sumner Tunnel. So right now we're going to drive through a portal door that gives us access to the underground project. Oh, it's enormous. Looks like the Batcave. It's funny, that's what we call it sometimes. It's like James Bond. Or Get Smart. Remember Get Smart from the 60s? The Northfield Pump Hydro Plant was built in the late 1960s. The tunnel leads to the giant generating station inside. When this facility was built, it was actually the largest pump storage facility in the world. Just under 1,200 megawatts. So we're good for well over a million homes. Water from the reservoir, now high overhead, flows through four 18-foot diameter conduits drilled into the rock. Gravity and powerful pumps forced the water down to the hydro plant carved into Northfield Mountain. The water spins the electric generating turbines. And to think this was built over 50 years ago with the technology that was available at that time. To recharge the battery and get water back up to the mountaintop reservoir, the pumps work in reverse. When Northfield was constructed, the electricity for the pumps came from the then-just-built Yankee nuclear power plant located a few miles up the Connecticut River. Vermont Yankee being a nuclear power plant generates power 24-7 on what they call base load. So as a result of that, at night, they had all this excess power on the grid. So somebody needed to take it. So this plant was conceived and built to take that off-peak power and utilize it through pumping water during off-peak periods. Actually, the Sisyphean labor of pumping water up and down the mountain is a net energy loss. More electricity is used than generated. But because off-peak electricity costs less than the price Northfield gets for what it generates when demand is high, the system is a moneymaker. Buy low, sell high. Exactly. That's what we do. Genius. <laughs> That's right. We arrive at the underground workaday world of operations manager Doug Bennett. So right now you're uh, about 750 feet inside the mountain, about a half a mile in, and you're in the control room, and this is where the guys here are going to start the machines and they're going to monitor that operation. The Northfield Mountain Pump Storage Hydroelectric Station is still in the process of converting from old analog controls to digital systems. An ancient red rotary telephone stands at the ready, it's a direct link to ISO New England, which operates the electrical grid and decides which plants go online. When they call there, it's either to confirm something's going on or there's an urgent need, and they'll uh, ask us to start units fast. We like the, the sound of that phone. That is the sound of money. Gus Backus leads the way to the cavernous pump storage hydro generating station. So where we are right now is we're on an observation deck overlooking the four units. So you can see four generators. This is unit four, three, two, and one. So the facility here is about 100 yards long and 10 stories high. You know, you can read about it. You know, you can look at videos online, but to be underground and actually see it and experience it, I think really drives the point. This is a pretty unique facility. The Northfield Mountain Pump Storage Station provides nearly instantaneous power on demand. When the red telephone rings and the call comes from ISO New England, energy in the form of the water battery flows into the turbines at 27,000 gallons a second. And the generators roar. Each produces nearly 400,000 horsepower. 
together producing as much electricity as the Seabrook, New Hampshire nuclear power station. We could theoretically provide from zero megawatts to 1,168 megawatts in about 10 minutes. So if there was a contingent loss on the grid, we could make it up pretty quick. And the generators can produce electricity for about eight hours flat out. The U.S. Department of Energy has big plans for battery systems like this. Pumped hydro is the most cost-effective way to store electricity. 99% of the bulk electric storage in the world is pumped hydro. And by 2050, the Energy Department wants to nearly double the amount now produced, enough to serve nearly 25 million homes. I guess the question is, where does pump storage play going forward? Gus Backer says Northfield Mountain is now undergoing relicensing to run for another 50 years and believes the half-century-old facility can serve a new role in the future. Since the Vermont Yankee nuclear plant shut down two years ago, Northfield has been buying its off-peak operating power straight off the grid. But as more solar and wind comes online, Bacchus believes the pump storage generating station could one day run as a totally climate-friendly supplier of electricity. So I think the goal of our facility would be to look at the opportunities to purchase purely green renewable power and be able to supply green power to the grid. At the foot of Northfield Mountain, the company operates an 18,000-panel solar farm. It covers two acres and generates two megawatts. It's just a drop in the bucket of that produced by the pump hydro station, but it's a start. That was Bruce Gellerman from WBUR reporting. To see what it looks like inside the Batcave, head to our website. It's nextnewengland.org. In Maine, Republican Governor Paul LePage's energy director is stepping down from his job at the Capitol. Patrick Woodcock told the Portland Press-Herald, quote, Augusta is really broken. Energy policy is really complicated, and there's an over-reliance on special interests. Woodcock says he wants to keep working in energy in Maine, but outside of state government. As our region aggressively moves toward new renewable sources of power, Woodcock says we need to stay focused on bringing down costs for consumers and businesses. We reached him in Augusta, Maine. Welcome to Next. Thank you for having me. First of all, why'd you step down? Energy policy sometimes is made more complex by the interests that benefit from the complexities. There are a lot of companies, financial groups, environmental groups that are always selling to legislators across New England policies. And we have built up a Byzantine structure around energy where it's very difficult for the layperson who is trying to represent their constituents to make sense of it all. Furthermore, in Maine, we have term limits that I think exacerbates the problem. A new legislature comes in every two years and tries to understand what previous legislatures have created. So maybe you can explain some of those those Byzantine in intricacies just so that we have a little bit better understanding of, of what you mean. Give, give us an example of something that's that's far too complex in the way it's constructed. Every New England state creates their own renewable policies. So what is renewable in Maine might not be renewable in Connecticut or Massachusetts. And as a result, we have all of these carve-outs and policies that are a function of every New England state. We need to create a robust, renewable support structure and design something that has uniformity across the New England states. That's how we'll bring investment. That's how we'll lower cost. We don't have that in New England. 
What do you think the future of wind power in Maine is from all the maps that I've seen of available wind energy in our region? Uh, Maine, both coastal Maine and also uh, northern Maine, has some of the most, I suppose we'll use the word fertile territory to grow new wind power plants. Do you see this as, as part of the future for Maine's energy and the region's energy? Yes, as you can imagine, um, like any state, uh, we have some areas where it is not consistent with the best use. You know, we have some beautiful areas of Moosehead Lake, the Appalachian Trail, that you know people visit because of the, the lack of infrastructure. I do think that there, there is room for, for wind to be hosted in the state of Maine. It just comes down to cost and, and ensuring that Mainers benefit from it. We've had a, a, a struggling economy, especially in rural Maine, and trying to see how we can ha- see those economic benefits from construction, but also lower cost energy for Mainers. You were pretty far down the road on an offshore wind project that that didn't move forward. What, why hasn't Maine, with all this available coastline and available wind energy, uh, been more in the forefront of wind power? Why is it Rhode Island that put up the nation's first offshore wind farm? Some of it deals with our geography. In Maine, we have a precipitous increase in water depth right off the coastline. So the type of technology that they installed in Rhode Island would not be something you could do off the coast of Maine. Instead, we've looked at floating technology, and that opens up a larger resource, but you can understand is more challenging technologically. There are a lot of sophisticated companies that are looking at it, Chinbro in the state of Maine is partnering with the University of Maine and Amera, uh, Nova Scotia energy company. There have also been global energy companies that have looked at floating technology. The thing is, with any long-term contract, whether it's the Rhode Island wind farm or uh, a development project, these take a huge amount of capital. And for a small state like Maine, shouldering those costs can be difficult. Um, we are encouraged that the Department of Energy has awarded uh, up to $40 million for one of three national projects, and it is anticipated that that will move forward off the coast of Maine in the next three years. So we are moving forward, but uh, you can understand that, the, that this takes research, this takes development, and it, it's a challenging task if you think about uh, putting up a turbine larger than the Washington Monument that would float and be able to withstand a Gulf of Maine winter storm. The thing that we've heard consistently is we've had this series of conversations about energy policy in New England is that for every new development of solar or wind, there needs to be some sort of development of natural gas infrastructure to to backfill that. What has happened recently seems to suggest that new gas transmission pipelines aren't coming to the area in the way that people thought they were going to anytime soon. Do you see this as a problem for New England's energy future, and what do you think we do about it? I I do think it's a massive uh, challenge for New England. Our growth in our natural gas consumption from our electric sector has been extraordinary. We've gone to the point where just a few years ago, we were using only 10% of our electricity was being generated from natural gas to 60, 65. With the retirement of Pilgrim, we're going to have increasing amounts of natural gas being used. And the challenges are entire regulatory structure 
does not allow, unlike other regions, for electric generators to purchase pipeline capacity in our current market structure. There's a fundamental misalignment between our electric markets and our natural gas markets. When we can't get enough natural gas into the region, we rely on imported liquefied natural gas. We rely on oil. And when those substitutes are priced low, that's fine for consumers. But if we see a return to where oil has been uh, historically, $70, $80, $90, we are going to be in a very extreme competitive disadvantage from the other regions that are using natural gas. And that will put all our employers that are energy intensive at a severe disadvantage. I do think that New England has to wake up to the reality that we are going to need natural gas for the decades to come. Bath Iron Works just lost out a, a huge contract to a Florida firm. And one of the biggest things that they cited was the cost of energy of losing that bid to Florida. We are not doing justice if we move emissions and jobs to other states. When we talked to Patrick Woodcock a few days ago, we asked him, as someone who served in the administration of Paul LePage, a governor who's been likened both politically and in temperament to Donald Trump, what he thinks the impact of Trump's national energy policy might be on Maine and New England. But that was before we learned that President-elect Trump had picked Oklahoma Attorney General Scott Pruitt to head the EPA. Now, Pruitt's been a close ally of fossil fuel companies. He questions the human impact on climate change, and he's been sharply critical of EPA regulations. So you won't hear Woodcock's response to this appointment because of the time we didn't know those specifics. But he did have some interesting thoughts on national energy policy. I think it is important that we have costs that, are, that we incur, environmental costs, from coal emissions in New England. We had a report recently that mercury in, in the Gulf of Maine has gone down. That is a good thing. But secondly, I do think that we do need infrastructure. And I am encouraged to hear that both Congress and the incoming administration are focused on moving forward with infrastructure. I, I am encouraged that, that we will start to look at, at moving forward with cross-state infrastructure projects, whether that's a natural gas pipeline through New York to supply New England or transmission lines that go across the U.S.-Canada border. If, if we don't have a regulatory process in place that allows businesses to make those investments, we are seeing those consequences in New England, and those consequences are not good. But but it is interesting as you talk about the the policy changes that we've gotten some, if not specifics, at least some some conversation about about expanding coal, expanding oil. That's one a point I I suppose where national energy policy rubs up against regional energy policy. It really does have an impact on us if the rest of the country starts burning more coal, doesn't it? Yeah, and, and a lot of these a lot of energy policy is delegated to the states. It's hard to see the federal government being able to counteract the market forces that have moved national electrical production from coal to gas. You know, you could put requirements for a certain percentage, like we do in New England, for a certain percentage to come from coal, but that is a really a state decision. I do think that, that you know, with energy policy, it comes down to economics, and the economics have moved towards a cleaner burning more dependent on natural gas over the last decade. And I think that trend's going to continue no matter who is in the White House. 
Patrick Woodcock, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you. If you'd like to hear our other conversations with energy leaders in New England, go to nextnewengland.org. There you can also find links to our series about renewables and distributed energy storage. It's called The Big Switch. Coming up, a place to recover from addiction, way off the beaten path. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. About a dozen miles off the coast of Cape Cod sits a rustic island called Penakees. It's near the end of the Elizabeth Island chain. A hundred years ago or so, Penakees was home to a leper colony, then a school for troubled boys, and a bird sanctuary. This past fall, Penakees opened to its newest incarnation, a treatment program for opioid addicts. New England Public Radio's Karen Brown takes us there. We leave the dock in Woods Hole on a 35-foot lobster boat and push off into the calm waters of Buzzards Bay. An overcast dawn has made way for blue skies and stunning visibility. Seals out there on those rocks. It's my first time on this hour-long trip, but for the staff of Penakees Island Treatment Program, this is their commute. Clinical Director Coco Wellington, a rugged, straight-talking woman, says it never gets old. That's the island. I'm in love with that island. It's so starkly beautiful. Don't worry about that. Once we're into the dock, you guys can step off and I'll get the rest. As we pull in, three young men walk down a hill from an 1840s style farmhouse to help bring up groceries and prescription medicine from the mainland. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Coco. Hi, how are you? I'm doing excellent. How are you? I'm well. Did you get your razor? Yes. Yes, I did. Not long ago, these men were in jail, and before that, using or selling heroin. All three asked to be identified by first name only, Kevin, Tracy, and Brett. None of them have been here longer than a week. How'd you guys sleep last night? Like I was in hibernation. As we walk up the hill, a few small buildings and wood piles dot the landscape, but mostly it's barren grassland with sandy inlets and wind-swept shrubbery. We walk into the main house to put away the food shipment. What else needs to be not done next? You just want to throw one of the halves and halves and one of the milks in the fridge. Yeah, we'll just keep the, you know. This 75-acre island has an exotic history. The Wampanoag Indians lived here until the English arrived. A few centuries later, it housed a marine laboratory. In the early 1900s, the state of Massachusetts bought Penakees for a leper colony, its isolation ideal to hide away that era's medical pariahs. Oceanographer Jim Newman has long helped manage the island. When the leper colony closed, they burned all the buildings. Not clear that anybody wanted it for, for a while there. The island stood virtually empty until the 1970s, when a former Marine opened a school and boot camp for troubled boys. But after 40 years, enrollment declined and the school closed. That was 2011, just as the opioid epidemic in New England was taking hold. 
The board that oversees Penikey's looked for an agency to turn it into an addiction treatment program for young men. One venture closed after a few months. They eventually found the Children's Study Home, a social service agency based in Springfield. After negotiating for a year with the Department of Public Health for a license, they brought their first patient out to the island in August. A backgammon is if he gets one of his guys off before I get in my home. Penikees is billed as a recreation of 19th century life. The only electricity is solar-powered, just enough for the staff to charge their phones, run the fridge, and keep one laptop functional. There is Wi-Fi and a landline, but no TV, no iPods, no electric light. So if I get a one, I can get you out. Tracy is a 24-year-old New York City native who used to go to clubs every night. Now he passes the morning learning how to play backgammon from the nurse. Yep. The men went through detox before coming to the island. This is the therapeutic stage. They've been screened for suicidal and violent histories. The treatment philosophy revolves around delayed gratification. Any delivery is a day away. And the island itself is a therapeutic partner. Penakees Island has one attribute that very few other places have, and that is isolation. Weston Lant is island caretaker, a former rock band roadie turned organic farmer. He says the addiction program here is unlike even the best urban clinic, where in a moment of weakness... You could walk out the door and drop a dime and get what you need, or what you think you need. Here, that's off the table, and that's as much a security issue as it is security for them. It's freedom. It's like, you don't have to think about it. It's not going to happen here. So now you get to think about everything else. Now you can focus. But these men didn't exactly seek out the place for its therapeutic qualities. All had been convicted on drug charges and given the choice of incarceration or treatment. It was like, this place got me in quicker. It was like, you can go here in two days or you can wait in jail for another month and a half, two months to get somewhere else. 20-year-old Kevin is the quietest of the three patients. For part of the day, he sits alone on the front porch, looking out at the bay and sometimes at his own feet. He's still adjusting. So, like, I came from jail, so, I mean, everything's, like, loud and everyone's just crazy. And then you come here and it's just, like, dead silent all the time. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Okay. Yeah, it's just shocking. More time to, like, think. You just sit there thinking... Holy God, what is that flying around up there? Is that a hornet's nest? There's too many of them flying around up there. Brett is 26. He's already tried and failed at a more institutional rehab. He says he's open to the island's healing properties, but still getting used to kerosene lanterns, going to bed at 9, cooking on a cast iron stove. You know, you got to heat the stove by burning the wood multiple hours before you, you're trying to cook. Not only that, but they have to chop the wood themselves. You want to be back far enough from your cutting surface so that This is their first day of training on using an axe. You want to eat? You got to cut wood. Looks like I'm going to starve. This is also part of the treatment curriculum. Physical exertion with a meditative undercurrent. Natural mindfulness. If you're not paying attention, you're going to cut your leg off. Never really known what it meant, though. Mindfulness. The confinement is more in your mind. Staff member Weston Lant. In other words, you're not in a rehab center. You're on an island, and you're not locked away while everybody else is conducting their life. You're conducting your life here. 
There's room on the island for 12 patients, but the agency hasn't been able to hire enough staff for a full house. It's been hard to find and keep people willing to commute an hour by powerboat and leave their home for three-day shifts. The remaining therapists work to create a sense of family with the patients, the kind born of mutual dependency. Everyone cooks, eats, and cleans together. And as they do, therapy happens incidentally. Tracy hovers over a charcoal grill, having just finished a Skype meeting upstairs with an off-site psychiatrist. He did. He's like, you got PTSD. I'm like, I do. How'd it go? Made me feel like I was crazy. As the burgers cook, he tells counselor Nick Bolomo that the doctor wants him to go on a new psychiatric medication. You said do some research on him? I mean, that that's, would be my suggestion. Well, how can you do that much if you think about it when you can't? Google is amazing for a lot of things. Okay, well, we're on an island where we cannot have electronics. That seems like a fair point, though Bolomo offers to print the information on his day off. Tracy shrugs and asks Brett to take over the grill. I just burnt all the hair off my knuckles. Really grab grab, a, grab me a pair of tongs. Judging from the good moods and mild weather, this seems like an ideal day on the island. But as the days get shorter, Brett expects life will get harder. Well, it's going to get cold here real soon, and the winters aren't very fun on Cape, so can't imagine being on an island that's not very big. You know, snow, the wind, there's nothing to block any of the window. And at one point, Brett whispers into my microphone the audio equivalent of a message in a bottle. Take me back. <laughs> help, help. He's joking, of course, or half-joking, but ultimately Wellington, the clinical director, says how the men react to the island's challenges over time will let staff know when they're ready to leave. It could be 30 days, 90 days, or longer. Are they going to turn to staff and ask for help? That tells you something. Or are they just going to dissolve into a, a bundle? You know, Or are they going to run away? All of those things tell us how they manage stress. The last official activity of the day is group therapy in the island's one-room schoolhouse. Wellington starts the session with a Tibetan bull ringing and moves into a mindfulness exercise with M&Ms. I want you to put it in your mouth, but do not chew it. Just feel it with your tongue. Feel the taste, the texture. She then leads them into talking about addiction. Right, what are the triggers? What, you know, and what, kind of, what are the triggers, and how do you react to them? I don't know. I get what you're saying, where it could be like a build-up, though, because sometimes, like... And then it's their turn to weigh in on the rules of the island. Brett goes first. Go ahead. Why are there no MP3 players are allowed? Like the ones that have no screens? We, we don't, we want people to unplug. We don't want them to be tuned out. Tuned out. That's really important in this whole process. Wellington adds they don't have enough electricity to keep devices charged. And anyway, no one in the 1800s had MP3 players. But the men aren't buying it. It's, a, it's like the whole quitting every substance, all the alcohol, uh, mm-hmm. cigarettes, ev- everything at once. Mm-hmm. You're just dropping your whole life and coming to the island. It's the same mm-hmm. thing with, like... No TV, no cell phones. Getting to make a phone call, but being told you can only call once every however often. I don't know, that's very difficult for me to just... Same thing with not well, being able to listen to music, not being able to keep, keep you know, tabs on my that's favorite football team. The counselors decide one rule they can relax is supervision. Patients are free to roam the island alone. They can check out a bird sanctuary for Arctic terns on the other side of the island, or visit the leper graveyard from the 1920s. 
Tracy admits he's already been exploring the shore. Me, this morning, I was just lost in my own head real quick. That's why I... I no, that's fine. That's I fine. started, just... I was starting walking out on the basketball court, and then the next thing I know is I was at the dock, and I'm like, oh. These guys will settle into island life and start to face their demons, Wellington tells me later. It just takes time, something they have here in great supply. For now, they're still getting to know each other, a task made easier by their low-tech entertainment options. For the program to work, the children's study home has some challenges ahead. According to the director, treatment costs $500 per day per client. They're not yet licensed to take insurance, and they don't want it to become a country club clinic for the rich. So right now it's mostly funded by donations. Sadly, they don't expect the demand for opioid treatment to drop off anytime soon. If this approach succeeds, they hope to be a model for the rest of the country, at least wherever there's a free island. Who's this? Stop showing me up. Oh, I know, right? I noticed you got a little understand there. Yeah, I Yeah, uh-huh. That's Karen Brown from New England Public Radio reporting. For pictures of life on Penakee's Island, go to nextnewengland.org. Coming up, a visit to the not-so-scary home of Stephen King. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Melville Charitable Trust, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of housing and homelessness. Bangor, Maine is one of the most famous towns in the world, although many people might not realize it. Fans of renowned horror author Stephen King, well, they know Bangor well, but it's by another name, Derry. The fictional town is a thinly disguised version of Bangor, where the author has lived for decades. Derry appears in many of King's stories and provides the major setting for the novel It. Maine Public Radio's Jennifer Mitchell took a tour of the real Derry with a tour company exclusively devoted to showcasing Stephen King's Bangor. Hello. Oh, right in the front. I take it this is my ride. This is your ride. It's the second run of the day for SK Tours of Maine. The SK stands for Stephen King, though King is not affiliated oh, with the business. I know, Ren. This family has come from Pontypridd, Wales. They're all big fans of King's work, says Tina Fox. It must be an incredible mind to come up with such stories. Uh, And I wanted to have a feel of where he was and lived. The dark maroon van is suitably styled for a tour into the macabre, with a Poe-style raven painted on the side. Toward the back, a deranged clown appears to burst through the side. It's a nod to one of King's most evil characters from the novel It, who would speak to children from the sewer. I, Georgie, am Pennywise the Dancing Clown. You are Georgie. Even now to this day, when I see the, the gap, on the sidewalk, between the road and the sidewalk, I think of it. To this day, I do that. (laughs) Pennywise ruined clowns for a lot of people. That's Stu Tinker, who's been running the tours full-time for seven years after retiring from the book trade and selling his shop, Bet's Books. 
That bookstore still exists, but only online, and it's run from Connecticut now. Tinker has been following King's career for more than 40 years. Over the decades, he met and hosted the author for book signings and got to know his story. Eventually, his shop came to sell nothing but books by Stephen King and by his wife, Tabitha, also an author. King, through his descriptions of dairy, basically put Bangor on the world's map, says Tinker. It's amazing how many people come to Bangor, Maine because of Stephen King. I've had people from Kuwait, I've had people from China, people from Russia. Uh, I mean, it's from all over the world, and they're all brought here because of Steve. He doesn't want to admit that he's a celebrity, but he certainly is. The tours take anywhere from two and a half to four hours. Stops include the graveyard, where some parts of the film Pet Cemetery were shot, the drugstore, where the King family not only shops in real life, but which also appears in the story Bag of Bones. Visitors see as many as 25 or 30 sites along the route. He takes local things, changes the names a little bit. Oriental Jade over here, <clears throat> this restaurant, In the book It, that became Jade of the Orient. That's where the protagonists reunite years later at a Chinese restaurant, and at the end of the meal, nasty things emerge from their fortune cookies. The tour guide offers an account of Stephen and Tabitha King's many charitable works and donations. There's a drive-by of King's big Victorian home. And you'll also hear about the author's real life, which was marked by years of struggle, poverty, and actual hunger as a fledgling writer. And, of course, there's the actual manhole where King first imagined Pennywise the Clown lurking down below. They float, Josie. They float. And when you're down here with me, you float down! Tinker offers two tours each day all summer long with a less frequent schedule in the slower seasons. The tours fill up fast, he says, and he's had to turn people away. Business has become brisk enough to where he could expand beyond his 12-passenger van, but he says he wants to keep things small so everyone can talk together about the stories. In some ways, it's like a rolling book club. And nobody's mentioned uh, the Dark Tower series. Anybody a read bit it? of everything. It's a little fantasy. That's Jennifer Mitchell from Maine Public Radio reporting. The charitable projects that Stu points out on the tour, well, those are a big deal in Bangor. Here's City, Community, and Economic Development Director Tanya Emery. I think the two things that come to mind most immediately when we think about Stephen and Tabitha King's generosity in Bangor are the Mansfield Stadium Project and the Panko Pool. These are two city facilities which the Kings donated substantial amounts of money, well north of a million dollars for each of those projects to build an absolutely world-class Little League stadium. Mansfield Stadium is named for uh, a Bangor child who passed away, unfortunately. And the family was very involved in Little League. And Stephen, being uh, a baseball fan and uh, former Little League coach himself, was really passionate about making sure that the kids had a really fantastic place to play. And next to that, he also funded, about 10 years later, the Panko Pool. The pool is an incredible city facility where we have pools and water slides and there's areas for lap swimming and uh, toddler splash area and it's really an incredible municipal pool and it was to replace a pool that that Stephen and Tabitha being in the neighborhood knew was really substandard and the city would never have been able to afford to replace it were it not for that generosity. You probably can't afford to donate a pool but this is the time of year when we're all asked to open up our pocketbooks and give to charity in the spirit of the holiday but also to get that tax deduction. 
Columnist Susan Campbell took a look at the numbers on household charitable giving and what they say about New Englanders. Susan, welcome to Next. Thank you. As you wrote in your story, Susan, just around Thanksgiving or maybe just a little bit beforehand, the mailboxes start to fill up with requests for donations from nonprofits. Was there always this push around this time of the year? Not really. We've been able to take tax deductions off of our taxes. We get a tax incentive for giving to charity since 1917. The laws have changed, but what happens is most of us are really skilled at putting off what we need to do, and so we wait until the end of the year, which happens to coincide with the holidays. It coincides with the holidays. It coincides with the end of the uh, of the calendar year as well. So, so talk about the tax incentive and, and how how much that contributes, you think, to people giving at this time of year? It's tough to say. I don't have real data as to how much religion pushes people to give to charities. But since 1917, as I said, there was the War Income Tax Revenue Act, which allows people to take money off of their taxes when they give to reputable charities. Um, That's religious, charitable, scientific, or educational organizations. So you analyzed uh, charitable giving by household uh, across the country. Maybe you can talk about the trends you observed and how we in New England here stacked up. Not great. (laughs) We don't (laughs) tend to give as much as everyone else. New England as a whole gives an average of less than 3% of our household incomes to charity, and that compares to a national average of 4.7%. Wow, so that's quite a gap. Why do you think that there's this big gap? I have data for that. Um, (laughs) It may be based partly on religiosity, as we spoke about earlier. There was a Chronicle of Philanthropy study that said deeply religious states, such as Utah or Mississippi, give an average of 7% of their household incomes to charity. Now, again, compare that to New England's less than 3%. And not to get political, but traditional red states tend to be more generous than blue ones. And New Englanders just aren't that religious. Hmm. How unreligious are we? (laughs) We're all going to hell. No, not really. (laughs) Um, There's a a Pew Research study from 2014 that said just 45% of people who live in the Northeast consider religion very important. That was the phrase. And we scored behind every other part of the country, including the South, which scored the highest, where 62% of people surveyed said religion was very important. So is the religious-based giving that we assume is part of the issue that separates a more secular New England from a more religious, say, Utah or Mississippi, does that have to do with charitable contributions that go directly to a church or a church-based organization, or is it just about overall generosity? I would hate to say people in New England aren't generous, but there is still a Puritan-based view of the deserving poor, and it would be tough to suss out exactly how much our lack of religiosity keeps us from giving. Um, But giving to religious institutions overall is down 50 percent since 1990. That's from Giving USA Foundation, and part of that comes from the general drop in interest in traditional religious institutions. But part of that, too, comes from, and this is from the foundation, comes from those confounding millennials. They tend to give differently, more thoughtfully, and less reflexively just because their parents gave to an organization is no indicator that they're going to. I, I want to bring into the conversation Jim Clocky, who's with the Massachusetts Nonprofit Network, and he's based in Boston. Jim, welcome to Next. Thanks for having me. Could you tell me about the organizations that you represent? Sure. We're the state's uh, nonprofit association. We represent nonprofits from across Massachusetts, from every subsector of the nonprofit world. So education nonprofits, housing, healthcare, transportation, they're all part of our organization. 
Could you talk about uh, the numbers that we just laid out with Susan there that shows that New England, by and large, is is not as charitable as much of the rest of the country? What do you see in that? Well, I think, first of all, it's great that you honed in on the question of religiosity, because I think that that is clearly a big reason for the differential. You know, it's interesting because one other defining characteristic of New England is, getting into politics here, a bluer region of the country in general, larger support for government and government activity, but also a huge nonprofit sector, a huge network of nonprofits across all of New England that provide services. We did a study six months ago and found uh, that the nonprofit sector is the sixth largest in Massachusetts as a share of total jobs, and most of the other top five or six states were all New England states. So the nonprofit sector is a very big part of the New England economy, the job base, and the social service delivery mechanism. So, Susan, we seem to rely very heavily on nonprofits. We maybe lag the rest of the country in overall giving. But as Jim said, once you factor out some of the religious-based giving, maybe New England is doing okay. One thing that we do tend to say here, and I think it's probably true, is we pay higher taxes than in the rest of the country. Did you notice a a correlation between tax burden and the amount of uh, money people are willing to give to charity? That may be above my pay grade, but I will say that the Urban Institute published a breakdown of charitable giving by state in New England. The leader in charitable giving is Connecticut, with an average of about $5,400 per return with itemized deduction, and the low was Rhode Island with about 3100 In the case of Rhode Island, which with the lowest average charitable contribution in New England states, That may be the case. Rhode Island, according to the Tax Foundation, ties for second place with five other states for the second highest statewide tax rate. So there may be there may be causation. Jim, what do you think about that? Do you think that there's some some correlation there that that perhaps our high taxes keep us from giving more to charity? I'm, I'm not sure, to be honest with you. I mean, I think one of the factors that's probably driving those Urban Institute numbers is uh, simply uh, income levels per capita incomes. Connecticut is one of the wealthiest states in the country, as is Massachusetts. And there is there is no Massachusetts state deduction right now for charitable giving. It's supposed to come back in four years, and we want it to. Um, but the federal incentive is is there, and it's large, and it's significant. Um, and that's actually that's something that could well be an issue in 2017, which, which we and others are very concerned about. We'll talk a bit more about that. If ARC tax code changes massively over the course of the next couple of years, do you see that hurting your businesses, Jim, that maybe people won't give as much if the tax code disincentivizes them to give for uh, for the charitable deduction? Yeah, that, that's a that's a real risk. People are very concerned about it. And so we're going to be watching really closely what kind of tax reform legislation takes shape. I think it's going to it's going to play out early next year. Uh, there was in the campaign just concluded uh, the Trump platform included a provision which said that they wanted to propose capping the amount of individual deductions that any particular tax filer could take. The result of doing that is that you will reduce in some cases and you will eliminate in others the incentive that is provided for upper income people to make charitable contributions. It's a big incentive. It's it's very sizable. We don't have any doubt that it produces a lot more giving than than would otherwise take place. And there's no doubt that a lot of nonprofits rely on it. What will happen probably early next year is that the new administration will put a tax bill together. They'll send it up to Congress and then Congress will do their own version of tax legislation. Uh, They've said that this is one of the top things that they want to get started on. And tax bills are never they're never easy to do. They often take longer than you think. But the fact that this issue is highlighted 
you know, as one of the top priorities coming in means that I think we will be having this debate in 2017. Aside from the politics of it, Jim, that we just outlined, I'm wondering how presidential election years line up for you as charitable giving years. A lot of people are giving to political campaigns, which uh, aren't the same as a charitable donation. Do you see a, a downturn every four years because people are giving elsewhere? So that that also um, uh, would be a question above my pay grade, although I can tell you that there has been some interesting, significant spikes in donations just in the past few weeks since the election. People are wondering what will happen next year. People are thinking about the causes and the issues that they care most about. And there has been a definite spike in some areas. I think between now and the end of the year, you'll see very strong giving, both because of political uncertainty and also because, you know, both at the national level and, and at the state level in New England, you know, the economy is picking up more momentum. Unemployment is is continuing to go down. The job market's getting tighter. That produces more income. And so that, that gives people more, more money from which they can make year-end donations. Susan, part of your reporting looked at this spike that we've seen in just the last couple of weeks since the election. People have been giving more? Yeah, the Boston Globe called it Rage Donate. The Atlantic Magazine reported that groups that champion causes like civil liberties and women's health or immigration rights saw record responses to the election in the form of contributions and volunteer applications. Planned Parenthood alone reported about 80,000 donations within just a few days of the election. Columnist Susan Campbell and Jim Clockey from the Massachusetts Nonprofit Network, thanks so much for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you. Go to nextnewengland.org to read Susan's story and to see some data about giving in our region. Next is produced at WNPR by Andrea Moraskin. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Production help this week from Mal Leary and Annie Sinsabau. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and WNPR 90.5.